The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So the, um, the idea uh, behind this retreat is to have a look, a little bit of a look at the word of the Buddha uh, himself. And uh, as always, I like to make it fairly practical. Uh, look at, you know, how, how does the Buddha talk about meditation practice? Uh, uh, what are the uh, kind of the broader context for meditation? How do you make meditation work in the long run, etc., uh, etc.? Et it's not really going to be very theoretical. That's not really the idea. The idea is to make it as practical as possible. Uh, and the reason for that is because the Buddhist path is a practical path, right? It's about um, doing something for yourself, doing something for your life, uh, improving your, uh, uh, your own life and also your relationship to people around you. Uh, so it's a very practical path, the movement away from suffering towards more contentment, more happiness, more joy, and all these other uh, positive things in life. Uh, and uh, the, the reason that I like to focus on the uh, suttas, uh, rather than just uh, talk about these things, which is kind of the, the, the normal way things are done, is because, uh, uh, well, there's many reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is that it's just great to be able to read the word of this sage who lived two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, this man who had a kind of a you know, full understanding of happiness and suffering, uh, a full understanding of the human predicament, what it's like to be a human being. Uh, uh, this uh, person who, uh, you know, who was the founder of this incredible movement that has been going on for two and a half thousand years. Uh, here's the person who started this whole thing, right? Uh, a movement that has been rolling on uh, throughout the world for two and a half thousand years, from one society to another one, from age to age. Uh, this astonishing uh, uh, person who, who started this whole thing off. And the amazing thing is that we still have the word uh, of this person. Uh, the word of the Buddha is still available. Uh, and we can know that with a fair amount of certainty through uh, historical research into the, uh, you know, the transmission of these texts, etc., etc. We can maybe talk more about that later on. Uh, but we can know with a, with a fairly high degree of certainty that the majority uh, of these texts are very <coughs> well kept intact and very similar to what they were uh, two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, and the astonishing thing is that, you know, this is talking about two and a half thousand years, it's quite a long period of time. Uh, when we're talking about, you know, the Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha moving from one culture to another culture. Uh, and still, it is relevant, right? You read it, and it's like, yeah, this makes sense. I can make, I can understand this. Most of the, you know, literature that you read that is so old, you can barely relate to it. It's kind of, you know, what on earth is this? This is just completely different from how we talk about the world or look at the world. But here, we're talking, we're looking at something which still is fully relevant, even though it, the the changes have been so massive, both culturally and and also temporarily in, in time. So this is the, the first thing, just to get some feeling for this, what this person said, right? I mean, this, this is kind of the, the root of what Buddhism comes from, what Buddhism is all about. Uh, so just, what, what did he actually say here? And of course, sometimes people say that it is hard for us as ordinary lay people to understand the word of the Buddha. We need, you know, it's not easy to access it. Uh, and there is, of course, there is some truth to that, uh, you know, as a, as a monastic, you have a great advantage because you study these things full time, and this is what I, you know, this is one of the things that I do with my in my monastic life is study these suttas, and so you have a, a, a 
great advantage as a monastic also because you live these things all the time. So you have both the living side of it and also the study side of it. But still, even though you, you know, it's difficult for you to immerse yourself as much in these things as it is for a monastic, still these, there are things in these texts that are, will immediately grab you, that you will understand straight away. There are similes in here, there are stories, there is just pure, more like doctrinal stuff, that when you read it, you think, wow, this is just so nice. You know, this, this is something which I really can, can relate to. And then you can apply that in your own life when you feel inspired in this way. So there's a lot in here which you understand straight away. And that is great. Another thing is simply the fact that even though you don't, may not understand it, you will be able to, you know, when somebody then gives you an interpretation, you will be able to relate to whether that interpretation is roughly right or roughly wrong. You can hear different interpretations of the same sutta, and you will have some background to be able to understand what it is about. This is the first advantage, just getting into the word of the Buddha, right? This, this amazing person who lived two and a half thousand years ago. Sometimes I say amazing man, but one of the things about the Buddha has really trans gone beyond gender. Because when you reach that kind of state of awakening, gender has become irrelevant. So I think it's better to call the Buddha an amazing person. I think it's more true to what he actually was as a, as, as a being. And the second thing which is good about this is that it gives you some sense of perspective on Buddhism. When you hear talk uh, from different contemporary teachers, uh, it's good to have a perspective, right? Like a framework, a skeleton uh, on which to hang those teachings so you can kind of relate them to each other, understand what they're all about. Uh, if they have no skeleton for this, uh, then often you get all these disparate teachings uh, uh, and they, they're not really, you wonder how does it all hang together? Uh, uh, and it's hard often to make sense of because of that. Uh, and the third thing is that it gives you a little bit of neutral ground on which you can also judge other teachings. Uh, you have some idea whether they are real. Is this a real Buddhist teaching or is it not? Uh, which ones, if you find two contradictory teachings, which is not all that common within Buddhism, you have some way of measuring, right? Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Uh, how can you decide these things? Uh, so it gives you, a, it has a lot of advantages uh, of getting into the, uh, the suttas. But the most important one is just to feel some inspiration of this word, of this person who existed, who started this whole thing, right? Uh, what did he have to say? And that is obviously the most important of all the teachings, of all in Buddhism, is what he had to say here. Okay, so that's just a very short introduction uh, to the suttas. Uh, and uh, if you have any uh, questions about this, we can take those in the evening time, which is Q&A time. Uh, you can just write them down on a piece of paper, uh, and we'll uh, look at those then. Uh. Okay, so let's start. So the first uh, sutta, a sutta is like one discourse by the Buddha, uh, one occasion when he gave a teaching to somebody. That's basically what a sutta means. Uh. And uh, the first one here is called volition. And the word uh, volition is a bit technical. It basically means the will, right? The will being active. So it's like the, the doer, the doing inside. That's the, what volition is all about. So this is what uh, the Buddha had to say here. Bhikkhus, bhikkhus is monks. Monks, for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition needs to be exerted. Let non-regret arise in me. 
It is natural that non-regret arises in one who is virtuous, one whose behavior is virtuous. For one without regret, no volition need be exerted. Let joy arise in me. It is natural that joy arises in one without regret. For one who is joyful, no volition need be exerted. Let rapture arise in me. It is natural that rapture arises in one who is joyful. For one with a rapturous mind, no volition need be exerted. Let my body become tranquil. It is natural that the body of one with a rapturous mind is tranquil. For one tranquil in body, no volition need be exerted. Let me feel pleasure. It is natural that one tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, there is no, no volition need be exerted. Let my mind be stilled. It is natural that the mind of one feeling pleasure is stilled. For one who is stilled, no volition need be exerted. Let me know and see things as they really are. That, that it is natural that for one who is, who, uh, who is stilled, that he knows and sees things as they really are. Yeah. So this is the uh, first, this is not actually the full sutta, there is a little bit more to it. It goes on a little bit longer, all the way to kind of final uh, liberation. But this is the most important part for our purposes right now uh, of this, this particular sutta. And um, uh, uh, there is a number of things in the sutta which are very, very striking. Well, the first thing that you see straight away, just to give you a little bit of background, is pretty repetitive, right? Uh, it says one thing, exactly the same paragraph, and they change one word, and then they uh, put a new word in, and then it goes, goes on exactly the same way, paragraph after paragraph. And this is very typical of these suttas, is that they are very repetitive. And the reason for that is because this is uh, basically is an oral type of literature. And if you want to transmit something orally, you have to make it easy to remember, right? Easy to kind of, to, to, uh, uh, to recite and easy to pass on to the uh, following generations. And this is one of the techniques of making that possible, is to make it very repetitive. So it's easy, each paragraph looks exactly the same, and you just, all you have to remember is to change one word from one paragraph to the next one. So that is the reason. So it sounds a bit boring, but actually it's, it's just the way that these things have to be structured because of the oral tradition behind this. So that is, the, uh, that is just uh, kind of the, the framework of this. But one of, the, one of the fascinating things that you will see here, but first of all, I should say, uh, what this is all about, it's about the psychology uh, of meditation practice, uh, or the psychology of the progress on the Buddhist path, right? Uh, what does it feel like? Uh, how do you experience meditation? When, when meditation starts to work, uh, what does it feel like inside? Uh, what is your subjective experience? Uh, of your meditation practice. And this is what this is all about. So you can call it, if you like, the psychology of meditation. This is how you how it's supposed to work, right? And um, of course, one of the things that you see here straight away is the emphasis on happiness, right? On good states of mind. It goes all the way through this thing here. Of course, non-regret is here the first one. Not to have regret is in, it, in itself kind of a positive thing, obviously. And then after that, you have joy, rapture, and then pleasure. All of these things obviously refer to very happy states of mind. 
you have tranquility here, which again is about feeling a sense of peace, right? Tranquility of the body, tranquility of the mind. And then you have stillness of the mind, the mind not moving anymore here, which also is a very pleasurable state, very, very pleasurable state of mind. So it's all, basically, it's all about happiness, right? So this is what how meditation is supposed to be experienced. Happiness throughout, one stage, one happiness more profound, more deep than the previous one, one after the other. So again, there's this idea, the whole Buddhist path is really one about leaving suffering behind. And as you reject the suffering, let go of the suffering, happiness kind of arises, you know, Stage after stage, level after level, deeper and deeper you go, the more happiness you experience. Happiness here does not mean kind of happiness in a sort of very mundane sense. It means any type of happiness that you can have, whatever sort it is. So happiness here means, you know, joy, feeling joy inside. It means peace, it means compassion, it means all these good things that you associate as positive mental feelings, all that is included in happiness. It's a very, very broad category. It's in fact the broadest category of happiness that you can possibly imagine. So this is the first thing, right? It's about happiness. And what a, what a wonderful thing that is. And the second thing, because this is about how meditation is experienced, it also gives you a map. This is a map, this is a layout for how you can practice and how you should, how you should practice and what you actually ideally should experience. So these are like milestones, right? A little kind of uh, little markers which tell you, okay, I've gone, gone so I'm on the right track. Uh, and then if this doesn't happen, you know, perhaps you are on the wrong track because this is not actually working as it's supposed to do. So it gives you a very clear map for how uh, the meditation is supposed to proceed. And this is one of the, uh, uh, the Buddha explains the path of practice in many different ways. And the psychology of meditation, how it is supposed to be subjectively experienced, is one of those. Another way that the Buddha talks about meditation is through the what you're supposed to do, right? In other words, uh, how it feels and what you're supposed to do. These are two different angles uh, uh, on which to understand the meditation practice or the practice of the path. You do this, uh, and this is what you experience. Uh, two different ways. Uh, and uh, again, that's one of those uh, astonishing things about these teachings. They're very, they come from different angles. Uh, the same teachings are kind of related in different ways. Uh, and when you understand the different angles in different ways, it becomes a very complete picture. Uh, it's like different pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, you put it all together, it looks like one big piece. Uh, but uh, you have to kind of put them all together to understand what is going on there. Uh. So these are, these are different ways of understanding it. And this here is the emphasis is on the psychology, on your personal subjective experience of these things. So um, you go through all these happinesses, right? Happiness after happiness upon happiness. And the more happiness you have, and eventually you come to this deep stage of stillness, known as samadhi, which is concentration uh, down there, called concentration here, uh, called stillness by people like Ajahn Brahm. And then based on that, uh, you see things according to reality. This is the last step on this particular uh, stage, on this particular sequence that is in here. So it is from happiness, from stillness, from the uh, deepening the meditation experience, more and more, the more deep it is, uh, 
the more ability and the more power you have uh, to be able to see things in accordance with the reality. Uh, and this, of course, is one of the things that we are trying to do on the Buddhist path. Uh, it's one of the things that I have always found very attractive with the Buddhist teachings, uh, is that we want to see things as they actually are. We want to understand reality. We don't want to live in a fantasy world. We don't want to live just in myths and legends, but we actually want to see things as they really are. Uh, and this, of course, is kind of, it sort of aligns very nicely with our, you know, our modern outlook on the world, right? All, all the science, all the things that we try to do in the world are a way of trying to move towards seeing things according to reality. And Buddhism, the Buddha's teachings, kind of aligns with that. It's also a seeing things in according to reality. It's slightly different. It's a different way of doing it. It's not a scientific method as such, but it is an inward method. And understanding essentially your own mind and yourself, who you really are, seeing that in accordance with how it actually is. So this is what makes it so exciting, right? It's like a, this investigation, this understanding of things. It's, a, it's kind of an uncovering of reality as it actually is. That is one of the great things. You know, who doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't want to see things as they actually are? This is about wisdom, right? Seeing the world as it actually is. And uh, especially when happiness comes along with it, well, if you thought that everything ended in suffering, of course, maybe you wouldn't want to uncover it. But the very fact that it actually is conjoined with happiness all the way through uh, makes it very, uh, very attractive. Uh, you see reality and you get happiness, right? Uh, wow. So, very, um, very powerful. And um, the um, one of the... So that's kind of the end of this path. This is the purpose, what we're trying to get to, is the seeing of things as they actually are. Uh, and uh, this is the process by which it happens. And one of the important things in this sutta is this uh, refrain you see throughout here. It says here, no volition need be exerted, uh, is what it says in here. Uh, now, the, the Pali behind that is not uh, chetanaya karaniya, which means no, uh, no intention, uh, uh, no, no, no intention, um, uh, basically means this cannot be done <coughs> through intention, is basically what it means, not to be done by intention, right? And this is kind of fascinating, so all of these things, this whole sequence, every stage you go from one stage to the next one, it, this cannot be done by intention, it cannot be done by volition, it cannot be done by an act of will, it cannot be done by exerting yourself and willing these things to happen, right? It is a natural process, that's what it says here, it is natural that joy arises in one without regret, it happens as uh, you know, one thing leads another one all by itself. So what that means is that what you really have to do, because it can't be, can't be done by will, because it can't be done by exertion, it means that what you have to do, you just have to sit back and wait for these things to arise, right? That's what it means. So all you have to do is just sit back and wait, right? Not do anything at all. Do absolutely nothing. And the less you do, these things are supposed to just come. Is that a great teaching? You just, you, just, you just hang out, right? And just wait. Wow! And the happiness comes, the stillness comes, right? And you don't have to do anything whatsoever. This is the kind of the beauty about these teachings. So when you 
And of course, it means it's very easy, right? There's no exertion, there's no pressure, there's no will, there's no doing, there's nothing at all. It's just a sitting back and waiting. And if you wait in the right way, if you wait with the right attitude, it just happens, right? One thing comes after the other. Happiness upon happiness upon happiness. Stillness upon stillness upon stillness. Insight upon insight upon insight. It just moves forward all on its own accord. And this is, this is great because it means that it's a very relaxing and very easy path when you get it right. When this kind of, this train kind of sets in motion, it just moves by itself. It has its own momentum and there's nothing that you really need to do whatsoever. So why is it then that when, and this, this is the unfortunate reality, you sit down and you think, yeah, okay, it's supposed to all happen by itself, so you sit down and you wait, right? <laughs> nothing happens. <laughs> So, <laughs> so why, why is that? Why is it that nothing happens if, if it's supposed to happen by itself? Is, it, is this the Buddha wrong? Or is, you know, am I talking nonsense and interpreting this? Or what, what's going on here? And the answer is that because the whole thing is an automatic process, you have to, have to go back to the very first factor on this, uh, of this natural sequence. And it is the first factor which is the most important one. By strengthening the first factor, by making that more powerful, uh, that is how this whole train gets set in motion, how each one of these uh, kind of happen automatically by themselves. So, and what is the first factor here? It is it's called here virtue, that's right. I'm not sure if virtue is, a, is the ideal translation, uh, because virtue in English means, you know, means not doing anything bad very often, being a virtuous character, you don't do kind of bad stuff. Uh, but uh, in um, Pali, the Pali word behind this is sila. And sila in Pali is much more than avoiding the bad stuff. Sila is more like habit. Uh, it's like personality, character, all of these things. Uh, it's about having the right character here, yeah, right? Uh, so you have a character which is wholesome, which is good, uh, good-natured. Uh, not on, when you're good, not only do you avoid the bad, uh, but you do good stuff, right? You are kind, you are compassionate, you are helpful, you are generous, you have all these other things as well. So when we often talk in Buddhism about, you know, you, to be a good Buddhist you have to keep the five precepts, it's not enough. Five precepts is just a foundation stone. Please, for goodness sake, please keep the five precepts. All the time, right? I mean, this is so important in Buddhism. If you don't do that, then uh, uh, the chances of meditation working are basically zero. Uh, well, not zero. Sometimes you will still have some nice meditations, uh, but uh, it, it's really, it's going to be very destructive for your whole spiritual path. So please keep the five precepts always, right? Uh, and don't to try not to, try to avoid any kind of, uh, you know, uh, sort of company by, in which you kind of, it's easy to break the precepts and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but again, uh, that is a very, very good start, but there's more to it than that. Uh, and that is the fact that you also need to do the good things. You have to actually actively be kind in this world. And not only is it about actively being kind by body and by speech, which is normally what we talk about when we talk about kindness, but it's also about the mind. So the Buddhist idea of virtue and morality is very incredibly broad. And it basically it's about your character, who you are as a person, your personality, your habits, your whole way of being is included in this thing we call sila. So because sila 
here called virtue because it is so important. This is one of the things that you really need to we need to talk about how to develop this in uh, uh, in in your life in general. And then you will find that each time you go on retreat, you will find that if your sila is uh, improving, if you're able to. Uh, create a strong foundation in that. Each time you go on a retreat, it will be a little bit better, right? Your mindfulness will be a bit more powerful. Your stillness will be a little bit deeper. The joy you get in your meditation practice will be a little bit higher than last time. And everything will start to flow exactly as it says in this sutta. So this is, this is then the, uh, the importance of virtue. And I think the, this is often under understated, right? Uh, often we emphasize meditation a lot, and particularly in the kind of the Western world in the past kind of 20, 30 years, the Pasana meditation, Samatha meditation, and we talk about meditation a lot. Uh, but actually meditation is fairly automatic, yeah? and the thing that we need to work on really is always how do we think about things? How do we act in the world? Uh, what is our character like? What is our personality like? This is what is the foundation stone for all of this to actually work. So please keep that in mind. I think this is so important. I don't think it can be overemphasized. It is so utterly foundational for the whole thing we call the Buddhist practice. So this is... Um, so yeah, so that that is kind of the uh, I think the core message, or one of the one of the many core messages of the sutta is this idea that virtue is the foundation stone. But let's have a quick look now at the um, how the sequence works, what this sequence actually means. So you start off with uh, being uh, have, being good-hearted, kind-hearted kind of person, and from that you have no regret, right? Regret here means that means many things, but it means, of course, it means the idea of not having any remorse. But it means that your mind is quite naturally bright. You have a naturally bright mind. Uh, whenever you do something bad, it kind of drags you down a little bit, uh, and you don't feel as bright as usual. Uh, there's a little bit of kind of darkness inside. Uh, you don't feel good about yourself. Uh, and when you have no regret, the natural consequence of that is you have joy. This is pamuja in Pali. You feel happy about yourself, happy about your conduct. When you think about your life, you don't even have to think about it. There's actually natural happiness there that arises as a consequence of that. And this tells you, and this is what the next sutta extract is all about, this tells you how good your virtue is and how good your uh, uh, your, you know, how, how good your life is. If you find that, generally speaking, you come back home maybe after long, after a day's work, or you come on the retreat, and generally you have a sense of gladness about your life and about your conduct and about who you are as a person. If you have that gladness, then you know that uh, virtue, your virtue, is heading in the right direction. Huh? This is, in a sense, how you can how you can test these things. So this is a very high standard of virtue. Huh? Very, very high standard just when you have this natural sense of gladness about it because you, uh, because you practice in this way. Huh? And from that gladness, when that gladness, when you then sit quietly down, that gladness is, and again, it's one of those basic things that are there as a foundation for your meditation practice. And when you meditate based on that gladness, uh, then after a while, when you keep being with that, then this thing called rapture starts to arise. Uh, and rapture is really just a strengthening of that gladness. Uh, and you start to feel it physically in your body, right? You can feel kind of like a coursing energy almost through the body. Huh? It's a very pleasant state. Uh, 
and it's a state uh, which is a kind of a heightened uh, sense of gladness. You can feel it physically, quite literally here. And as again, as you just wait, you just stay in the present moment, you stay with these feelings, and after a while that rapture, which is quite <coughs> physical, starts to die down. And it is instead what you find is an, this deep sense of peace, deep sense of tranquility, when your body is really completely relaxed and really at ease, the breath just flows so naturally. There's no sense of stress or tension whatsoever. There's complete evenness physical evenness, and the, and the mind also at this point is very, very tranquil and very much at ease. And as you continue this path, then as you continue this tranquility, building it up, eventually you get this deep sense of contentment and pleasure. And this is the sukkha that arises afterwards, called pleasure here. And of course, the more of this pleasure, this, this, remember all of this pleasure we're talking about, about now is a pleasure in the present moment, right? It's right here, right now. It's based on your virtue, based on your good character. So it's something which is directly and immediately tangible. It's not the kind of usual pleasures in life. The normal pleasures in life are often things that are a little bit in the future, right? You're looking forward to the meal, or you're looking forward to whatever it is. It is it's almost always associated with craving and desire in one way or another, the normal pleasures of life. And for that reason, you're never really quite in the present moment. You're always a little bit, even while you're eating, you know, you taste in the food, you're already thinking about the next piece very often. So it's always, it's never really here. It never comes down to the present moment. But this kind of happiness does. And this is why this kind of happiness is so powerful, because it glues you quite literally to the present moment. And because it glues you to the present moment, you are mindful. And it's natural. It's easy. You don't have to use any kind of willpower to be mindful. Mindfulness happens by itself, right? And then because mindfulness happens by itself, when you focus on the meditation object, like the breath, for example, or whatever, you, you know, you can't avoid focusing on it. It's just so happy and so easy to do. You're right here, right now, and it's so, it just happens. So happiness, this is how happiness then gives rise to stillness. The mind, the kind of concentrates naturally, concentrates without willpower, without volition, without you having to do anything at all, right? It's so easy. And that is how meditation should really be. Incredibly easy, uh, without any sense of stress uh, or pushing yourself whatsoever. And then when you come out of that meditation afterwards, that's when you see things as they really are. You, you are able to have some real insights into reality. Insights can be all kind of varied, it can be all kinds of insights, but the real insights that we're talking about in Buddhism, they happen at this stage, when the mind is incredibly powerful, incredibly peaceful, there's no hindrances, there's no defilements which kind of lead you astray. This is what happens at this particular stage of the practice. Okay, so uh, that is uh, the sutta on called volition. And uh, yeah, and I, I, I don't know, I, I always like to read this out at my, when I uh, lead a retreat like this, uh, because I, it says so much about how meditation works, uh, or how it doesn't work, uh, and what you're supposed to do. Uh, so, um, okay.
Okay, so the main point uh, with this sutta, which I wanted to emphasize at least now, and that is that it is all founded on uh, this idea of virtue, of kindness. So the next thing I want to do is to see how this actually works in practice. And this is what this next sutta is about. It's a, uh, an extract which I also like to read out on these retreats. Uh, and uh, most of these things are just extracts of much longer sutta. So if you are interested in reading the whole uh, sutta, you can, the, the references are all there. And if you don't understand the references, just ask somebody who understands. There are people around who, who understand these references. So this is from the Majjhimanikai, the middle-length discourses. And the, it's called Fool, Fools and Wise People. Again, uh, when a wise man is on his chair, or on his bed, or resting on the ground, then the good actions that he did in the past his good bodily, verbal, and mental conduct, they cover him, they overspread him, they envelop him, just as the shadow of a great mountain peak in the evening covers, overspreads, and envelops the earth. So too, when a wise man is on his chair, or on his bed, or resting on the ground, and the good actions that he did in the past, his good bodily, verbal, and mental conduct, they cover him, overspread him, overspread him, and envelop him. Then the wise man thinks, I have not done what is bad, I have not done what is cruel, I have not done what is wicked, I have done what is good, I have done what is wholesome, I have made myself a shelter from anguish. When I pass away, I shall go to the, to the destination of those who have not done what is bad, etc., who have made themselves a shelter from anguish. He does not sorrow, grieve, and lament. He does not weep, beating his breast, and become distraught. This is the third kind of pleasure and joy that the wise man feels here and now. And uh, this tells you uh, how... Uh, what happens when you live a good life? What is supposed to happen? Uh, how this works, right? Uh, it works in the, same, in the same way as a mountain casts a shadow over the ground when the sun goes down behind the mountain, right? The whole ground, everything is covered uh, in front of this mountain. There's nothing which is not touched by that shadow. Uh, in the same way, when you do lots of good actions, when your whole <coughs> life is dedicated to this, right? when this is what life is really about, uh, Life is not really about amassing money or having a career or having lots of friends or whatever. I mean, this is all great stuff. You can have that if you want. But that is not the kind of the crucial issue of life. The crucial issue of life is, by, is leading a good life. When this is what life kind of, kind of becomes the central purpose of your whole life, then, and you keep building this up, building this up, then in the same way as the shadow will cover the ground, in the same way, the good actions that you do will cover you, envelop you, overspread you, right? You can't escape your good actions anymore. And because you can't escape those good actions, when you sit down, they come to you and you just feel good. It's just natural. You can't avoid feeling good about yourself. Is that a good deal or what? That's pretty good, isn't it? You can't avoid feeling good. I mean, you... <laughs> Can't complain about that. So you can't avoid, you just feel happy, it's natural. Because the good actions are everywhere. They completely permeate who you are as a person. Your whole personality is covered by this. 
And this is the idea of, uh, you know, when we talk about virtue, this is kind of the whole point. When you take it to such a, when you practice this to such a point whereby you just, it's just completely natural that you feel good about yourself as a consequence of that. So uh, this is where we, want it, where we want to get to. And this is what happens when you then sit down, you come on a, it's not 100% reliable, right? It's not always going to happen because life is always a bit, little bit like this. But the idea is that it happens quite regularly for a person who lives that sort of life. And then when you come on a retreat like this, right? And you sit down and you just relax, right? You sit, you sit comfortably. And again, this is where you don't want to create too much pain for yourself because that pain will distract you from feeling the happiness inside. So you just relax and you feel at ease and you just feel yourself. You feel who you are. And because you've been doing all the right things, the good actions come back and they permeate you, they overspread you, and your whole being, you know, the whole thing, everything, your whole mind, your whole body is permeated by this. And then you feel the gladness, you feel the rapture, you feel all these things, and the meditation takes off as a consequence. So keep in mind the simile of the mountain and being completely enveloped in your, uh, your good character. Uh, and this is really what you are, what we should be aiming for in this particular practice on this particular path. Okay, uh, so that is just to give you some idea of the kind of, uh, dis or the kind of similes and metaphors that are found in the suttas. This kind of sim the Buddha is a master of similes and a master of metaphors. And you find this throughout the suttas. He gives this beautiful, very meaningful uh, ways of describing the path using similes. Sometimes if you just get kind of straight teachings, you know, uh, A, A, B, C, and kind of, it kind of gets a bit dry. And these similes are ways of kind of making everything more, kind of come to life in a sense, and makes it very powerful. I love the similes of the Buddha, and I find them often more meaningful and much more powerful than the straight doctrinal teachings, if you like. So, uh, now I'm going to uh, move on again there's quite a lot to uh, there's quite a lot of suttas here, so I'm gonna uh, gonna cover a few. Certainly, this morning we're still just doing introductory stuff. I'm basically introducing the topics I want to talk about in more depth later on. And uh, last year when I was here, I talked about the gradual training, and this year I decided to talk about a slightly different topic. I'm going to talk about the Noble Eightfold Path. So that is the main topic I want to look at uh, now. And uh, as I said yesterday, I, w I like to do things a little bit different on each retreat. So last time, the gradual training, uh, which is a very, very, very beautiful teaching in its own right. Uh, uh, but because I've already done that, and because I want to keep things a bit fresh and a bit new to make it more exciting and more interesting, uh, I decided this time to go for the uh, Noble Eightfold Path instead. Uh, and basically, they are, they are virtually the same. They're slightly different angles. Uh, of looking at the same thing, looking at the same kind of principles. All of the principles are integrated, all the teachings are integrated into one whole. So they're just different angles and viewpoints of, of this whole thing. So before I go on to explain the details of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, there's a couple of suttas, first of all, which are like overviews of how the Noble Eightfold Path actually works. Uh, and the first one of these here is called ignorance. And it makes an important point 
uh, of how, how this path works. So this is what it says uh, on the first one here. Uh, Thus have I heard uh, on one occasion that the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was staying at Savati in Jeta's Grove, another Pindika's park. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, the monks, thus, bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, those bhikkhus replied, and the Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, ignorance is the forerunner in the entry upon unwholesome states, with shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing following along. For an unwise person immersed in ignorance, wrong view springs up. For one of wrong view, wrong intention springs up. For one of wrong intention, wrong speech springs up. For one of wrong speech, wrong action springs up. For one of wrong action, wrong livelihood springs up. For one of wrong livelihood, wrong effort springs up. For one of wrong effort, wrong mindfulness springs up. And for one of wrong mindfulness, wrong uh, stillness springs up. Okay, I'll just finish it off. Because true knowledge is the forerunner in the entry upon wholesome states. Uh, with a sense of shame and a fear of wrongdoing following along. For a wise person who has arrived at true knowledge, right view springs up. For one of right view, right intention springs up. For one of right intention, right speech springs up. For one of right speech, right action springs up. For one of right action, right livelihood springs up. For one of right livelihood, right effort springs up. For one of right effort, right mindfulness springs up. For one of right mindfulness, right stillness springs up. So uh, this, the, uh, the reason why I have uh, chosen this, I chose this particular uh, sutta is because it shows you the relationship between the different factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, and sometimes it is, you know, sometimes you think that, well, what is actually the relationship between these things? Are there just eight factors that you can practice in any kind of order that kind of work more or less independently of each other? And of course, what the Buddha says, no, they don't work independently of each other. There is a very clear conditionality between these things. They condition each other and there's a sequence in which these things actually work. And that is so important to understand. Because when you understand that, you can, uh, it, it had, this has many consequences. And just like the previous sutta also shows conditionality, one thing leading to the next one. Uh, in the same way in this sutta, because it all also shows conditionality, the first factor is going to be one of the most important ones, right? Uh, because the first factor is the one which sets the whole thing in motion. The whole train kind of starts out because of the first factor. Uh, so the... Uh, the first factor here, well, let's have a look at, um, the, uh, uh, at even that which comes before uh, the first factor. Uh, and this here has the idea of ignorance uh, is the forerunner in the entry upon unwholesome states, it says here. Uh, so the idea, the uh, Pali word here, Pali is the language that pretty much the Buddha used. Uh, so this is the original language. The, the Pali word behind this is avidja. And avidja doesn't, ignorance is not necessarily the best kind of translation. It means that you are deluded. You don't see things according to reality. This is what it means. 
It doesn't mean that you are an ignorant person who doesn't know how to, you know, your multiplication table or whatever. It means that it's a profound, deep misunderstanding of how the world actually works. So if you don't understand how the world works, in fact, you have a view contrary to how the world works, then you might think that being immoral is okay, right? That's just what delusion means. You think that, okay, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to, cheat a bit here and cheat a bit there and, and do kind of, you know, lie a bit or whatever it is. And these things are okay because in the bigger picture kind of it's, you know, it's acceptable or whatever. You know, delusion works in kind of very broad, very kind of, there's many different ways of being deluded. And so just that you're kind of, you are justifying things which are not really justifiable. This is what ignorance here actually means. And of course, if you have that Ignorance, if you don't understand how the world works and you get things upside down, that is why you start to do bad stuff, right? Unwholesome states really means bad qualities, right? Bad qualities of mind, essentially. You enter upon them. In other words, you start acquiring these things. You get all these bad qualities because you are deluded about how the, how the world works. And this is actually, uh, this is something that can be used in many different ways. But one way of using this idea is to remember that when you meet people in the world who do bad things, right, who do stupid things, uh, then remember it comes from delusion, right? It comes from an inability to see the world as it actually is. It's a very powerful way of, of avoiding getting upset with people who do bad, bad things in the world. Uh, yet they're coming from delusion. Uh, they don't know what is in their own best interest. They don't know what is in the best interest of other people. They just haven't got a clue what, what's, what's going on. And once you understand that they are deluded and they're actually acting against their own best interest, how can you not... Then you start having a sense of compassion, right? Instead of getting upset by what people do in the world, instead of getting angry by their stupidity and the delusion, you can turn that around and you can feel the sense of compassion, a sense of understanding instead. So remember this, uh, that delusion is always delusion. It's always being foolish, but not really understanding things. That is always the cause for why people do things which are unwholesome, bad, immoral, unvirtuous, etc., etc. So very useful. And of course, what that means also is that we want to try to get, avoid, get, get away from delusion. We want to move towards uh, uh, understanding things properly instead. Uh, and together with that, shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing follow along. Uh, shame, the idea of shame, it means a sense of conscience, right? You have conscience, or you feel uncomfortable about what you have done. If somebody asks you, did you do this? You kind of are reluctant to admit that you did it, because it just doesn't feel good, right? And you feel like you have, like you, like you have dirtied yourself, in a sense, like you've sullied your mind by doing something bad. You feel that this is what a sense of shame is about. It's not really, you feel it's not really worthy of you to have done such a thing yet, and you feel bad about it. This is shame. Hiri is the Pali word for this. And the other word here, fearlessness of wrongdoing, is otapaha. And this is just, you, you understand that there are bad consequences from doing bad things. And when you understand that there are bad consequences, you have a sense of fear a sense of seeing the danger in doing, doing the bad stuff. So these two things together, Hiri and Otapa, are sometimes called the guardians of the world, because these are what guards 
uh, stops us from, from doing stuff that we, that we should not be doing here. And this fear of wrongdoing is, uh, you, can, you have this on many different levels, uh, but one, one of these fears, or one of these seeing the danger, is simply to understand that you undermine your own happiness here and now uh, if you do bad things. Uh, if you do something bad, how do you feel about it afterwards? You feel bad. You have a sense of conscience. You don't feel good about yourself. Uh, this is the first fear of, fear of wrongdoing, right? You know, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to feel bad about myself. Uh, and in a broader context, it also has to do with the ideas of karma and rebirth, right? You, you know that this is not only limited to this, this little life. It is actually, it is relating to something much broader, much larger, uh, uh, you know, even future lives. Uh, and down the track, uh, you will actually destroy your happiness uh, at, at the same time. Uh. So this is what the fear of wrongdoing is about. These two are two very uh, quite important concepts in Buddhism, this idea of hiri and otapa. Uh, and they, um, uh, they are kind of foundation stones. Uh, so you shouldn't feel bad about feeling a bit of shame. If you, if you feel a bit bad about doing, doing bad things, uh, probably it's a good thing. Uh, and will kind of keep you on the straight and narrow, on the, on down, going down on the right track. Yeah. And uh, then you have the opposite, right? The opposite is uh, then when you have true knowledge, when you do understand things as they actually are. Uh, now remember that there's many degrees here. When uh, the Buddha here uses the word true knowledge, uh, he uses you know, profound insight into the reality of things. Uh, and we are all kind of somewhere, most of us are somewhere in between ignorance down here and true knowledge up there. So we're somewhere on the scale between there. Our clarity about what's going on, about what is important, is somewhere on that scale. So we try to move towards true knowledge as much as we possibly can. And that is the forerunner in entry upon the wholesome qualities, right? So the more knowledge you have, the more you understand in accordance with reality, the more virtuous, the more kind you're going to be. And so this is one of the ways to decide, right, who, who are the real good people in the world? Who are the people with true, truly good hearts? Who are the people, sorry, who are the people who really have a profound understanding of the world? And the more virtuous somebody is, the more consistently they are kind and virtuous, whatever, the more likely they are to also see things in accordance with reality. So somebody who is, if you, you know, if you ever wanted to find out who the awakened people in this world are, or if there indeed are any, any such people at all, uh, look at them, look at their conduct. This is one of the ways you find out. Uh, this idea of crazy wisdom, whereby you do crazy things and, and all kind of stuff, uh, this is just a myth, right? Uh, the Buddha says, if you are awakened, you don't do crazy stuff, you do good stuff. That's uh, what he's saying here, basically. Uh, so don't, you know, don't, don't buy into some of these uh, myths that you sometimes hear about. Uh, a person who is awakened is a good person. Uh, and uh, uh, certainly you can, might do some crazy stuff, but not in a sense that you're breaching your, your virtue. So you enter upon the wholesome states with a sense of shame and a fear of wrongdoing uh, following along. Yeah. And then for a wise person who has arrived at true knowledge, right view springs up. This is part of the deal of having true knowledge is that you have right view. Right view is not some kind of, you know, dogma says you must, you must look at things this way. That's not what it is. This is what people sometimes think that right view is, I'm going to tell you how you should look at the world and this is right. That's not what it is. What it is, is it means that you align 
your way of looking at things with the way things actually are. Yeah. That's what right view means. Uh, is right in accordance with a with a standard of nature. It fits with how uh, the nature of things. Uh, from right view, you get right intention. Right uh, when you see, when you understand things in the right way, you intend things accordingly. Uh, and that intention is the intention of uh, doing what is right, doing what is good in the world. Uh, then from right intention comes the idea uh, of right speech and right action. Uh, this is the morality part of the path. Uh, and right action, right intention, and then right livelihood. Uh, right livelihood comes from right action. So these things come up as a consequence of that. Uh, so right view, you see things rightly, then you want to do the right things. Uh, and because you want to do the right things, uh, you do the right things. Uh, from that comes right effort. Uh, and right effort here means that you not only do you actually act in accordance with reality, uh, but you also want to purify your mind. Right effort is largely about uh, the purification of your mind. Uh, so your body and speech are okay. Uh, then comes the purification of mind. This is a sequential thing, right? You have to know the right sequence. Uh, you start with the coarser aspects of your conduct, uh, action and speech. Uh, and once they are kind of roughly right, then comes the more refined aspects of your conduct, what is your mental activities. So then you refine also the mental activities, and your mind also becomes purified in this way. And then, and this is the interesting thing, from right effort comes right mindfulness. Now right mindfulness is, uh, this is what the Satipatthana is all about, right? I'm sure you have heard about Satipatthana, one of the most banded around words in Buddhism. And this is really, uh, this is really about meditation practice. So meditation starts after right effort. So you have purified yourself. You can see again, this is exactly the same principle we are talking about before. First of all, the virtue has to be established. And only when virtue is established does the path of meditation really take off. So once you have, it's exactly the same thing here, once that effort has been done to such an extent that your mind is quite pure, only then is meditation really possible. Right? So that is what happens here. And then, once you have right mindfulness, that right mindfulness, again very interesting, that right mindfulness leads to right stillness. Right? So the purpose here, the purpose of right mindfulness, the purpose of the Satipatthana practice is to reach samadhi is to reach concentration, is to reach stillness. Very interesting. This is not something that you know you, you will necessarily see if you read the Satipatthana Sutta, but it is something which is part of the structure of the suttas all the way through. The idea that Satipatthana, the purpose of Satipatthana, is to lead to samadhi. And this then, samadhi, stillness, concentration, this then is the last factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And uh, that too uh, is quite interesting, the fact that uh, right samadhi is the last factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, and the reason for that is because this is where you don't, you don't need to do anything more at this point. Uh, you have practiced the path to the end, uh, and the natural consequence of having right samadhi is that you see things in accordance with reality. Uh, that is the consequence. Uh, so because you have practiced, you have done what needs to be done, uh, now the rest of the path, the, the insights, the understanding, uh, the seeing things in accordance with the reality, uh, all that happens by itself, right? Uh, 
So you've basically done what needs to be done here. Okay, so that is the uh, conditionality of the Noble Eightfold Path, and that uh, we will uh, come back to this as we go through the various suttas all the way along. Uh, we will get back to the uh, conditionality and all these things all the way through uh, and see how this actually works out. So, uh, that is a very brief overview of what is going on. Uh, and uh, of course, I will go into much more detail with these things. Uh, 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 over the next few days, uh, that is kind of a, a good starting point for you here. Huh?